1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that, that by your Holy Spirit you would take hold of our mind. We pray, Lord God, that as we walk through these verses that we would see these words as written not just to the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago, but by your Holy Spirit, that these words were written to us in the here and now. We pray that we would not look at these words as though they apply simply to the person sitting next to us or the one individual who is not here that should have been here. We pray that we would use and read your word in a way that it was intended to be used and read as a mirror that enables us to see ourselves for who we truly are. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would humble us, that you would direct our attention toward Christ, and that you would make us more like your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Essek William Kenyon. Probably a name that most of you have not heard of, understandably. He lived 1867 to 1948. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was the pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church. And he was the founder and president of Bethel Bible Institute in Spencer, Massachusetts. Essek William Kenyon is known by many historians, or considered by many historians, to be the father of the prosperity gospel. 
Although the prosperity gospel has certainly been around for 2,000 years in one form of another, the way in which it exists today traces back to Kenyon in the late 1800s. He uh, often quoted his favorite phrase, quote, what I confess, I possess, close quote. That was his famous phrase that he said quite often. So he is considered to be the father of what today is referred to as the prosperity gospel. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, it is the idea that if you have enough faith, God desires for his children to be wealthy and healthy. It is a sign and mark of spiritual maturity. It is a sign and a mark of a strong faith. Because if God is the king, and he is, so since God is the king and we are his children, then we all deserve and he desires for us to live as royalty. And if you don't, well, you're doing something wrong. If you're not healthy and wealthy. So that movement really begins in the late 1800s with Kenyon, but it doesn't really spread like wildfire and, and gain traction and become enormously popular in the United States until the late 1940s with the advent of television. Because beginning in 1948... There is a man who comes onto the scene who is considered to be the father of the modern prosperity gospel movement, and that is Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts took advantage of television because now you didn't have to go to his church. He could stream his church and his messages right into people's living rooms. Of course, society has only gotten worse since then. I saw a meme on the internet recently that showed a, a girl holding a television set in one hand and a hammer in the other, and the screen is shattered. And it said, and just like that, little, little Susan cured her family of the greatest plague that was threatening them. There's a lot of truth to that. So Oral Roberts breaks onto the scene in 1948. He uses television to stream his message into everybody's living room, and he amasses for himself an enormous amount of wealth. And, of course, people flock to his message, particularly Americans. Because, sadly, you study the history of the prosperity gospel, it is the United States is credited with that movement. We are the ones who primarily export that idea to other countries, South America, Central Africa, Asia. Largely has to do with our culture. Americans are driven by success. The desire for the almighty dollar, capitalism, free market thinking, so that material success is a mark of over, overall success. So Oral Roberts comes onto the scene, and of course others see what he is doing. They see how successful he is. They buy into his message, and they think, if he can do this, well, so can I. 
And so then it explodes, and he is rapidly followed by individuals like Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Norman Vincent Peale, Frederick Price, Benny Hinn, Jimmy Swaggart, Jim and Tammy Baker, Joel Osteen, Paula White, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, and the list goes on and on and on ad nauseum. With the invention of the internet, it has gained even more traction. Because it used to be, before the internet, you had to tune in at the right time on the right day during the week to catch what you want to see. Or oftentimes, in my experience, be up at 3 o'clock in the morning. But now, of course, you've got the internet where their videos and their messages just stream 24 hours a day, seven days a week. People can log on whenever they want and believe that if I just do X, Y, and Z, I will be fewer, free of disease and I will be wealthy. And I will live in a big, expensive home and I will drive big, expensive cars every three years. I will have the latest iPhone 30 or whatever it is now. So the problem with that movement, obviously, is that they believe that wealth and prosperity is a sign of God's favor. They think that if you are doing well physically and if you are doing well materially and financially, obviously God is pleased with me, which sadly means that they think the opposite is true. That if you struggle financially, if you've lost your job, if you were laid off to no fault of your own, if you struggle with medical disabilities or illness or disease or whatever the case may be, then obviously you are doing something wrong. God is displeased with you, and you don't have enough faith. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. The Corinthian church seemed to be falling into the same trap. Remember that the city of Corinth was an affluent city. It was located on the, it was a port, a, a, a coastal town, a port city, located on the coast of the, the Adriatic Sea. And so it was a crossroads between east and west. Greece, the Near East, the Far East, the Western world in terms of Rome and Spain. It was a blend of all kinds of cultures and ideas. They had the best of both worlds, so to speak. They learned from all of the ancient Greek philosophers. They learned from all of the Roman historians. They gained from the best of Roman culture and Greek culture. The result is that they were being greatly influenced by the thought and the culture that they were in. This was a sign of success. It was a sign of God's blessings upon us. Because the city of Corinth, the people who lived in that city, did not have to travel far before they realized how good they had it. In the ancient world, it would be the equivalent of traveling from Austin, Texas, or Dallas, Texas, or New York City 
and suddenly traveling through some of the towns and villages of Central South America or Central Africa. And you begin to realize how good we have it. It's one of the things that I always remembered when I served in the military. I never deployed, but I had many fellow soldiers who did, and they would come back. And the thing that always amazed me is that they would say when they went to Iraq and Afghanistan and did their tours there, they discovered very quickly that most of the people of the Middle East live about 500 years behind the United States. Most of them live on dirt floors. They live in huts. They don't have running water. They don't have central heating and cooling. We have it great in the United States. We are incredibly spoiled as a nation. The problem with that is the same problem the church in Corinth had, is that we tend to, whether we are aware of it or not, think that this is a sign of God's favor on us as a nation. And that creeps into the church. We tend to view ministerial success in terms of possession. What we have as a church. We don't want to be in a gymnasium or in a barn. We want a building because that's a sign of success. And if we build a building, we want a nice building because that is a mark of God's favor and blessing on what we are doing. Thus, in this passage, Paul is going to use extremely thick sarcasm to make a point. In fact, the sarcasm that Paul is going to use in these verses is so thick and so biting that I read several comment, com commentators who believe that Paul has to be addressing the leadership of the church. Surely he's not addressing the entire church with these words, but he must be just directing his comments and his sarcasm at the leaders within the church. The problem with that is that Paul doesn't say that in the text. He doesn't give any indication that he's only singling out the leaders, the elders, the overseers, the bishops. Choose any number of leadership terms he could have used. He does not do that. Secondly, he addresses the entire book in verse 2 of chapter 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth. He's writing to the entire church. He's writing to everyone. And so Paul does use sarcasm, which means it's not all bad. Used in the right hands. It can be good. I once saw a t-shirt that said, sarcasm is how I hug. Thought about buying it for a few people I know, but <laughs> I thought surely they won't take it well. And so he uses sarcasm, and we'll see that, but then Paul also uses the apostles at a, as a point of comparison to teach the church in Corinth that what they view as evidence of spiritual maturity is actually not. So he's going to do that throughout. He uses the apostles as a point of comparison to the church in Corinth. This is what you're like. This is what we are like. 
This is what you're like. This is what we, the apostles, are like. And so he lays it on quite thick. And there's actually three points that Paul is going to make. I should say three sub-points because his main point is really what the title is. I, I typically title my messages the main point of the passage. Uh, the hope is that it'll stick, that maybe if you remember nothing else about this passage, you remember the title, you've got the main point of this passage. His main point to them is up is down and down is up when it comes to God. But in driving home that point, he's going to make three additional sub-points. And the first is this. Unlike the church in Corinth, the apostles are viewed as fools, weak and dishonored. And so what he's going to do in this first point is he's going to address the issue of perception. That is, how does the world... And how does the church in Corinth, who in a lot of ways is behaving like the world, how does the world perceive the apostles? What is their perception of the apostles? In his second point, when, he get there, when we get there, he will deal with station in life. That is, what is the apostles' station in this world? What do they live like? What is their life like in comparison to the church in Corinth, or at least what the church in Corinth believes their station in life is like? And then in his third point, he will deal with the, the topic of behavior. That is, how do the apostles respond to the world in comparison to how the church in Corinth responds to the world. And so for his first point, unlike the church in Corinth, the apostles are viewed as fools, weak, and dishonored. Look at verse 8 with me. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You hear the sarcasm? Already you have all you want. You've already arrived. You're a success. You've got it all. What do you need us for? Already you have become rich. Materially, spiritually. Without us, You've become kings, in other words, and you've done all of this without the apostles. All on your own, all by your own effort, all by your own wisdom. You have reached the end of the road. And then he says, as if he's not laying it on thick enough, and would that you did reign. I wish that you did. I wish that you had arrived so that we, the apostles, might share in the rule with you. Wouldn't that be great? You could just bring us along. You could make us servants in your court if you all were already there. The church in Corinth had an elevated view of themselves. They thought too highly of themselves. And Paul knew that. 
That's their problem. They have a pride issue. They have a self-esteem issue in the sense that they have too much of it and need to divest themselves of most of it. But understand that this is not just a first century church problem. This is a 21st century American evangelical problem. Collectively, we think too highly of ourselves. We think too much of what we have done, of what we have accomplished, and of where we are, and of what we are capable of doing. So often it is the reason that many will attend churches for years on end and never join as members. Why? Because I don't need anybody to keep me accountable. Right? Church membership is for people who need other people. They're weak. They need help. I don't need any help. I don't need anybody to keep me accountable. I don't need anybody to hold my hand. I am fine just on my own. So I'll go and I'll visit and I'll, I'll see what they're all about. I'll see what they're doing. Maybe help them out if I can. But then I'll move on. Or worse, they won't go to church at all. I don't need church. I don't need to learn from somebody else. I've got a Bible in my hand, the Holy Spirit in my heart. I can read on my own so I can do church at home or while I'm driving. Sometimes I do church on the lake while I'm fishing because I don't need all of that. I don't need institutionalized church. I don't need organized religion. I always love it when I hear people say that to me. I don't believe in organized religion. So do you believe in disorganized religion? Or if anyone at church tries to hold me accountable, well, I'll just leave. They try to point out my sin, try to correct me, or say something that upsets me or offends me, I'm done. Why? Because I don't need them. I got God, and God has me, we're good. We have our own special relationship, me and God. So Paul lays the sarcasm on thick because this is their problem in Corinth. They've got it all. They don't need anyone's help. But this is also a 21st century American problem as well. But then he goes on to say in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So now as a point of comparison, Paul uses the apostles, that this is what we're like. And he's actually using battlefield language, triumphant language. In other words, he's using an imagery 
that brings to mind what conquering kings would do when they were returning back to their home city or to their home country. There would be a parade. There would be a procession. And at the front of that procession, the very front, was always the troops, right? They were displayed with all their battle armor, and all the people would cheer, yay, look at our great warriors. And then behind them, next in line, was the plunder. Wagons filled with gold and silver and coins and precious objects and maybe statues or things of historical significance, maybe even wagons filled with grain or wheat, or or they might have cattle that they're bringing as well, cows, bulls, sheep, goats, all of the plunder. Look at what we have taken from our enemy. That was always next in line in these parades. But then last in line, last in line were the captives. The individuals who were tied at the end, dirty, ragged, beaten, barefoot, being drugged along at the end of this triumphal parade, who knew that their lot was that they were either going to be executed in the town square so that everybody could see and cheer, yay, or they were going to be taken into the Colosseum and forced to be gladiators or fed to wild animals as a form of entertainment for the people. Verse 9, Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us. God has displayed us apostles last of all. We're at the end. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So Paul says, You view yourself one way as kings who've got it all. But we apostles, we view ourselves quite differently. We view ourselves as the ones who are at the end of the line, who have been sentenced to death, who are a spectacle to the world. This is how the apostles viewed themselves. This is how the church in Corinth should view themselves. This is how every believer should view ourselves. That we're not here to be friends with the world. We're not here to be liked by the world. We're not here to be wealthy and successful and accumulate stuff. We are here to do the king's bidding, to advance God's kingdom, to proclaim the gospel, to tell the world that they are sinners in need of a savior and that Christ is that only savior. And if you do that, you will be a spectacle of the world. You will be viewed as those who are sentenced to die. 
By we are spectacles to the world, Paul means how the world views the apostles. And how do they view the apostles? Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. That's what the world thinks of the apostles. Y'all are fools. You believe and trust in a God who is crucified? The Greeks listened to Paul's message and said, you believe in a God who raised himself from the dead? Right? That's when they stopped Paul at his message on Mars Hill. They listened to him until he gets to that point where he talks about the resurrection. And all right, now we've heard enough. Because in the mind of the Greek, this is hell. Being in this body is hell. What we want to do is be freed from this body, not resurrected back into this body. That's foolishness. Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. Hear the sarcasm? We are weak, but you, you're so strong, you Corinth, Corinthians. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. But you know, we're just apostles. We're just eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. We've only been commissioned by Christ himself to speak authoritatively on behalf of God, the very words of God. Who do we apostles think we are in comparison to the great Corinthian church? Paul says this is how the world views us. Not only is this how the world views the apostles, but apparently this is how the church in Corinth viewed at least Paul. We see that because when you get to 2 Corinthians, when you read 2 Corinthians, it is apparent that 1 Corinthians was not received well. Because throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul is clearly responding to various accusations that they are leveling against him. Who do you think you are writing 1 Corinthians to us? telling us that we are infants in Christ, that we need milk. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Obviously, he's responding to something that they wrote. Right? We don't know what they wrote. We don't have it. But you could see how, or you can imagine how it might have sounded something like this. You know, Paul, we read your letter, and you're such a tough guy when you're far away. You know, you write these letters, they're so bold, but when you're here, like, you know, person, you're just, you're a nobody. You're small, maybe bald-headed Jewish guy. I shouldn't use stereotypes. But they weren't impressed with Paul when he was there in person. They said, you know, you sound like such a tough guy when you're far away, Paul. He goes on to say in chapter 11, verses 16 to 21, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, right? Even if you do think that I'm foolish. Notice he doesn't say even if they do. Even if you do, church in Corinth, you think I'm a fool. But even if you do, Fine, accept me as a fool, Paul says, so that I too may boast a little. 
What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast as well. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. There's the sarcasm again. You guys think you're so wise, but you're really just foolish. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you. You're willing to bring yourself under the false teaching of other individuals or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were weak. We were too weak for that. So Paul says, I'll boast, but I'll boast in my weakness. He goes on to say, beginning in verse 22, are they Hebrews, these individuals who think they are so wise? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better servant of Christ. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews with 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Paul says, this is how I live. This, this is my life. So Paul says, if you're going to boast, fine. I'll boast in my weakness. I'll boast in my sufferings. And then he says, he gives us a reason why. Chapter 12, verses 8 and following. He prays with God about a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is. But he prays to God to remove it. Three times he pleads with God to remove this thorn in the flesh. And God refuses. Apparently Paul had never heard of the prosperity gospel. Where was Oral Roberts when Paul needed him? Three times. Instead, God says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul, you don't need the thorn removed from your flesh. You don't need what, you, what the world says you need. All you need, Paul, is my grace. You need to learn to lean on my grace to be sustained by my grace, to find your strength and joy and satisfaction and contentment from God, not from the things of this world. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ might rest upon me. If God's grace is made perfect in my weakness, then Paul says, I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses and I will rejoice in them because I want more grace. 
Second point. Paul says, unlike the Corinthians, the apostles suffer for the gospel and for God's kingdom. Look at verses 11 and 12 of our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, he goes on to say, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Keep in mind, the sarcasm is still there. It's implied. He's implying, you have to keep verse 8 in mind. You all have it all. You all are kings. You all have Reach the end. You've achieved success. But we apostles, verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, unlike you Corinthians who live so comfortably. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, unlike you Corinthians who live comfortably and dress well and suffer little persecution. We labor, working with our own hands, Paul says. Paul talks of all of the hardships that he has endured. We just read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wants to get them to take a look at how they live in comparison to how the apostles live. Because Paul's an apostle. Peter is an apostle. Apollos is an apostle. All of the, he's an apostle who is sent by the church with the church's authority. But none of the apostles, none of the original disciples lived well. Most of them died as martyrs, poor, broken, and alone. Paul says, look at how the apostles live. Eating well, he wants them to understand. Here's his point. Eating well, dressing well, living well are not signs of God's blessing. You know, some of the wealthiest people in the world are some of the most wicked people in the world. Sadly, that's what the internet has displayed for us as well. Material Success and physical health and well-being are not signs of God's blessing. They are not signs of God's favor, but so also neither is the opposite. My friends, we have to remember that. That when we struggle in life, when we struggle financially, when we struggle materially, when we reach age 40 or 50 and we're not doing or accomplished all the things that we thought we would have done when we were in our 20s, when we're not living the way we thought we would be living at this point in life, it's not a sign of God's disfavor. It is not a sign that you are doing something wrong. When you suffer from physical ailments or disability time and time and time again, it is this lifelong struggle 
that God does not seem to want to deliver you from because you pray and you pray and you pray. It's not a sign of God's displeasure with you. It does not mean that God is punishing you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul says, I prayed for God to remove the thorn in my flesh. Three times, and God says, I will not, for my grace is sufficient for you. He wasn't punishing Paul. Of all of the apostles, we could say Paul was the most successful. He wrote more letters than any of the other apostles. He traveled farther than any of the other apostles. He planted more churches than any of the other apostles. If God isn't pleased with Paul, we're through. The third point that Paul makes, dealing with behavior. So in his first point, he deals with perception. In his second point, he deals with station in life. And in his third point, he deals with behavior. That is, how do the apostles respond to the world in comparison to the church in Corinth? Notice verses 12 and 13, middle of verse 12. When reviled, we bless, unlike the church in Corinth, which is evident from 2 Corinthians. Right? They did not respond well to Paul's corrections and rebuke. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The clear implication, as I've already said, is that the church in Corinth did not respond this way. And now we know why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, right? But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still in your flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, Paul says, I talk to you and I write these letters to you as if you are unbelievers because you're acting like it. Engrossed in all of your pride and jealousy and envy and division, how else am I supposed to talk to you? So now we know why Paul wrote to them that way. Because 2 Corinthians makes it evident that they didn't learn anything. In fact, we know from church history that even 60 years after church's death, after Paul's death, the church in Corinth is still a mess. There are writings from the early church father to indicate this, that the church in Corinth continues to be a problem for the early church that various bishops are dealing with. 
Paul says they're acting like the world. But before we point our finger at the church in Corinth or look down our noses at them, we need to remember that as 21st century American evangelicals, it can be easy for us to fall into the same without even realizing it. It can be easy to think that so long as we own a Bible and we go to church and we do Christian things, we're fine. We're good. All the while pursuing the American dream because subconsciously I believe that if I have all of this stuff, then God is blessing me for the Christian things that I do. I need this stuff in order to validate my faith. There's a lot of Christians who live that way. It can be easy for us to adopt the world's standard for success and then apply that to Christianity, apply that to the church. But that's not how Paul thinks Christians should live. In fact, he becomes even more clear in verse 16. He will then say, in light of what he has said, right? Keep in mind what he has just written in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world. We are fools for Christ's sake, he says. We are weak, he says. We are in disrepute, he says. Verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. He'll go on to say in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says, you want to live a life that brings glory and honor to your Savior and King? Strive to live and do everything you can for the glory of Christ. But bear in mind that if you do that, You won't have many friends in this world. Because if the world celebrates and embraces you and your lifestyle, it is likely that you are still in the world. Because when it comes to Christianity, up is down and down is up. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you this morning and into your presence, we we pray that you would cause us to latch on to this message, that we would pray ever more fervently that we would not be influenced by the world, but that we would look to Christ as our example, that we would look to the Apostle Paul as our example, and that we would seek to be imitators of Paul, 
as he is an imitator of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.